All right, this is the Tom Benti Media Podcast, the Thomas Alva Edison series. This is episode number four with Dr. Paul Israel of the Thomas Edison Papers from Rutgers University. And this episode is entitled Vision and Beliefs. And Dr. Israel speaks about Edison's religious beliefs or lack thereof. So Edison was definitely not a religious person. He did not belong to any sort of uh, church or religious affiliation or denomination, but he did believe in something. It's unclear kind of his religious beliefs. He gives conflicting interviews and conflicting reports of what he believed in or did not believe in throughout his life. But it seems like he believed in something and he had a very naturalistic view of the world. And his view was relating to that nature would provide. Uh, So if there's a problem, whether it be relating to his inventions or to something in his personal life, he believed that nature and the natural world would provide. And uh, at some point, I think later on in Edison's life, he was potentially uh, coming up with a way to speak to the dead. I don't think that ever got off the ground, but Edison was coming up with some sort of device to speak with the dead, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, So he did believe in something. It's unclear of exactly what those beliefs were, but he had a very naturalistic view of the world, which I think is interesting because as we're learning more and more about Edison, he was completely immersed as an inventor. It doesn't seem like he had much of an identity or belief system beyond that. Uh, And it's, you know, even people that are really consumed with their work, a lot of times they can see outside the box. They can see things that are, don't let necessarily reflect kind of their um, career life or in their work life. But with Edison, that that's not the case. He was an inventor at all times. And that was, 100% of his identity and related to his uh, philosophical view of the natural world and also to his religious or spiritual beliefs as well. So Edison also was not much into the arts, but he did love Shakespeare. He loved Shakespeare. And I think it, it, you know, when you, when you talk about Shakespeare, you talk about the human condition uh, and, and I mean, who doesn't love Shakespeare? I mean, it's, it's, it's the greatest, literature of all time some of these plays are, are are they are timeless and it's not surprising that edison loved shakespeare's but you, you you look at it from a standpoint of of what is in shakespeare's play that relates to edison as an inventor and i think it, it comes to really understanding the human condition and with edison all his work was relating to human beings it wasn't just science for the sake of science it wasn't technology for the sake of technology it was how it can be used from an individual and also from a cultural standpoint and you see that potentially with why he loved Shakespeare so much because it spoke so deeply to that human condition and with Edison's work it was all about humanity it was all about creating something that can really better people's lives uh, from a standpoint of um, you know, these individual inventions really transforming the way that we live as a society and as human beings. So maybe that related to why he uh, had such an affinity for Shakespeare. Uh, So Edison said, uh, I didn't have, you know, I didn't fail 9,999 times. I just found 9,999 times ways that did not work. And this was relates to his belief that failure was just a way to success. So it wasn't relating to, you know, and this is something I talked about in previous episodes, how we look at failure and how we 
um, overcome failure can really, really define our lives in many respects. And I've seen it go in different ways, right? Something really bad happens to you. You, uh, you know, you, you have a, a heartbreak or, you know, professionally something just doesn't go the way that you have planned. Uh, it can either really just affect you and, and hurt you and kind of destroy your life in many respects, or you can use that as a way to succeed. And we see that with the way that Edison looks at his, at his work. It's not, you know, failing is just a part of success. And I think that's just such a critical mindset to have. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're a creative leader, as I like to say, failure is just a part of success. We see that with Edison and how we deal with failure and how we use it as a way to overcome and to succeed is such a big part of success. So uh, Edison knew that and he was able to always look ahead and look beyond these individual failures and just keep on proceeding and keep on proceeding. And that's something that I'm trying to do in my life. So at the very end of Dr. Israel's interview, I asked him specifically how he relates to the great minds of our time, specifically Steve Jobs and uh, Elon Musk. And uh, Dr. Israel, you know, talked that I think with, with Elon Musk, Elon was, is somebody who's such a visionary. He's thinking really outside the box where Edison was more concerned with fixing the problems of the day. And I think those are kind of the differences between them. I mean, Elon with the Tesla and Elon with, um, you know, his, his ideas of, of getting to Mars and things like that. He's thinking, uh, on, you know, way, way in advance of where we are presently, where Edison was concerned with fixing the problems of the day, which I think is a, is a big difference between them. Also, um, when it comes to uh, Steve Jobs, I think the similarities is both of them not only were they consumed by their work but also edison and jobs really understood how to use media to their advantage they were both great salesmen so they, they weren't only great minds they were able to use the media to their advantage and to progress the branding that is so important important in business and both uh, edison and jobs are really great at that also finally we speak about the relationship between edison and nikolai tesla and there's a lot of myth regarding their relationship. And uh, a lot of it's based not in fact. So Edison and Tesla actually had a very, well, I shouldn't say a very good relationship, but they had a very cordial relationship for most of their lives. Um, you know, Edison had a lot of respect for Tesla. And as I said in previous episodes, I think the, the big difference with Tesla and with Edison was Tesla was a great experimenter, but from the practical standpoint, I don't think he had the capabilities of, of taking this great knowledge that he had, this great science that he had and making it into some sort of practical use where Edison was the opposite. Maybe Edison wasn't as great of a scientist, but he was able to see the practicality. And I think that's the difference. Tesla was a, a, a great genius. He was uh, very smart, obviously very intelligent, um, revolutionary in his scientific thinking, but he lacked the practicality that Edison had. And that's why Edison was so uh, goal oriented. And that's why we use Edison's technology today. So the, uh, like I said, so Edison and Tesla, they, you know, were, were cordial for most of their lives. Edison had a lot of respect for Tesla and vice versa. It wasn't until the end of Edison's life that really this kind of this feud and this myth came to be. 
Um, so at the end of Edison's life, he was doted with all these, this praise and this significance and these awards, et cetera. And uh, some people, including Tesla, thought that it was a little bit undeserving and that a lot of the people that were working for uh, Edison really deserved more of the credit than that was being uh, given at the time. And that's kind of where that, uh, that feud comes into play. It wasn't until the very end of Edison's life where Tesla referenced in the press that he felt like Edison was getting a little bit too much credit. But, um, you know, they were both great minds. They just had very different ways of uh, going about things. And I think, um, you know, they're, you know, maybe if, if circumstances were different or, I don't know, maybe Tesla would have, have, have progressed more in his career than he did if, if uh, some things had changed. But that's, you know, that's life. Sometimes it doesn't work out maybe the way that we had hoped. But uh, another great episode, I, I think it's really interesting to talk about Edison's beyond his work, which is, is, is rare because Edison was so consumed with his work, but to understand a little bit more about him, his uh, religious beliefs, his spiritual beliefs, um, his views on failure and success, his love for Shakespeare, etc. So uh, another great episode with uh, Dr. Israel. I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, this is the final episode with Dr. Israel. We have one more episode coming up with uh, um, someone from the uh, Menlo Park Museum in Edison, New Jersey. Um, but this is the uh, final episode with Dr. Israel. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. And again, right, so I'm, I'm kind of putting this all together and, and relating it to how it, it affects me in my life, how I can use Edison, who is so productive and so successful, how I can potentially use that mindset into my own work. And obviously the big one is, okay, so you have a uh, failure and how you look at failure is really a way of understanding your success and a way to achieve success. So that's what I took mostly from this when it re related to my own entrepreneurial and creative endeavors. Failure is not going to stop me. I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to learn from the failure, learn from the mistakes, but never lose sight of the goals. And Edison was a great example of that. So uh, again, I hope you enjoy Edison num uh, episode number four, the Thomas Alva Edison series as part of the Tom Betty Media Podcast. And again, this episode is entitled Vision and Beliefs. I'll see you soon. So, Edison's, Edison is an interesting figure. He, he seems not to have been a person who believed in sort of formal religion. Uh, he did argue for following the golden rule. He saw that as the great principle that Christianity had brought to civilization. Um, he didn't believe in a personal creator he believed in some sort of higher intelligence. He had a vision of humans as uh, living on beyond their deaths uh, in the sense that he thought of intelligent atoms, right? That somehow the experiences and knowledge that people had gained during their life were somehow retained, right? And then you were sort of reincorporated into flowers or other people and so on and so forth. And, um, it's not exactly um, uh, clear to what extent he thought that that intelligence could somehow be manifested. 
Uh, he speculated at one point around 1920 that it might be possible to build some sort of device to communicate with the dead. Um, he never built such a device, although there were all sorts of stories that he was working on it. Um, he, so he clearly had this sort of philosophical view of, um, of the nature of the world, right? what it was like. Um, so part of that was that nature would provide, if you were working on a technology, the lamp filament is a perfect example of that, somewhere in God's creation is the perfect material, right? Um, uh, you know, God in his sense is not a creator so much, or, or a, a personal God, but sort of the, the thing that sets the universe in motion, right? Um, uh, but not one that's personally connected uh, to kind of watching everyone. Um, he believes in uh, the potential of some sort of life after death, but exactly what that is is kind of unclear, and the extent to which it can be manifested in any way is also unclear. Um, he is interested in ideas around spiritualism, but that was true of many scientists of the day, people with scientific bent, who saw spiritualism, what people called spiritualism, and its manifestation of forces we didn't yet understand. And so one of the things that Edison was very involved in doing throughout his life as an inventor and experimenter was looking for unknown forces. One of these was something he called etheric force. He discovered it in 1875. He could found that he could transmit at a distance uh, telegraph signals. Um, it turns out that Edison had experimented with but didn't realize electromagnetic waves that are the basis for radio. And he was doing similar kinds of experiments to what Hertz did later on that led to the development of radio. So Edison could have invented radio but didn't um, because he didn't really understand it. Neither did other people as well. Most people thought it was just some sort of an electrical effect known as induction, uh, which is an effect that, uh, uh, you know, so you send a signal through a wire, there's actually an electric uh, um, current that kind of extends beyond that wire. That's induction, in a sense. Uh, that was actually the way that Edison tried to uh, telegraph between trains and stations, for example. Um, so uh, Edison had this deep belief in unknown forces. And so the, first the etheric force, and then at his laboratory in, um, in uh, 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 West Orange, he uh, did a lot of experimental work on something that he had begun to conceive of in 1885 and first conducted a series of experiments and then over the course of his life continued to experiment with what he called the XYZ force. Something that was between electricity and magnetism and heat and cold. That somewhere in the middle of all that was this unknown force that could be used um, to produce new kinds of technologies. And so Edison had these kind of philosophical views of the world. Art um, appreciation, Edison wasn't a big one on kind of uh, modern art as he called it. When he went to Paris, he wasn't uh, imbued with what he called modern art. Uh, you know, he had sort of more sentimental tastes. Um, on the other hand, 
One thing that he loved was Shakespeare. Uh, we know that Edison, um, as a telegrapher in Cincinnati, he and his buddy Ed Gilliland would transmit Shakespeare back and forth to practice, and he actually performed in an amateur Shakespeare production. He loved Richard III. That was his favorite character. He actually played the part. Um, occasionally, lines from Shakespeare, especially Richard III, show up in the notebooks. Um, Edison also loved other kind of poetry. He liked Hawthorne. He liked other poets. Uh, he did read extensively um, literature and uh, uh, material beyond science and technology. So works on economics, on sociology, and so forth. Um, but his real focus was always on sort of thinking about how to improve and develop technology, right? And that's where he centered his attention. Uh, even at home, as I mentioned earlier, oftentimes his, his kids would be in the library with him looking stuff up at night. He would take ideas home with him, write out ideas. His wife would witness them, right? And so Edison never stopped working. We know when he went on vacation, he would bring notebooks along. He remarried in um, 1886 in February. His wife and he took a trip down south for a honeymoon, and then they went to stay for about a month at the new winter home he had built in Fort Myers. Fortunately for her, the lab wasn't ready yet, but Edison every day entered ideas into his notebooks, and she witnessed them. I think she learned early on to pay attention to what he was doing in the laboratory. What people thought was impossible was what Edison demonstrated he could do, which was distribute lighting, right? Uh, there were lots of people working on lamps. Uh, in, in England, there's a guy named uh, Joseph Swan who actually developed a similar kind of light bulb to Edison with a vacuum. Um, there's a debate as to who got there first, I think, um, that um, Edison probably got there first in terms of the high resistance lamp. I think that was the crucial thing because Swan's early lamps did not have high resistance. And when Edison displays everything at a big electrical exhibition in Paris in 1881, Swan actually acknowledges that even though he thinks he um, beat Edison to the lamp, he recognized that Edison had done everything else, right, that made the system feasible. And that's really Edison's contribution, is Edison understood that the lamp was part of a system. And it, without the system, right, you were going to have trouble really commercializing the technology. And that's what set Edison apart. Um, so how many experiments did he do? Nobody knows, because nobody's counted it up. Uh, essentially, what Edison did was he did a few desultory experiments on carbon and some other metals in 1877. Not very much. In September of 1878, he began not with carbon, but with uh, metals because of this issue of carbon burning up in atmosphere and without a good vacuum pump, which he didn't have when he was doing the experiments in 1877. He decided that wasn't going to be a very fruitful approach. Um, he thought he had solved the problem of keeping the lamps from burning out by having a regulator, sort of like a telegraph relay. Uh, and then he discovered that the um, uh, platinum was absorbing 
uh, hydrogen from the atmosphere and goes to vacuum pumps. He experiments with some other metals and then he turns to the carbon, first the thread and then paper and then he tries a bunch of different things. So he does hundreds of experiments with different materials, but um, there's not some five or 10,000 experiments, which are the number that are usually given. The 10,000 number actually uh, arose from a conflation of a later experiment, set of experiments that Edison did. In the first decade of the 20th century, Edison tried to develop a storage battery for electric automobiles. He was trying to devise a lighter weight, um, longer lasting battery for that purpose. And he first puts it on the market, he begins around 1900 with extensive experiments, comes up with a, a battery um, that's, that's based in part on an earlier design he had made for a primary or wet cell battery that was one of the principal batteries being used in American industry at the time. And he kind of used that as a way of sort of rethinking storage battery technology. He puts it on the market, there are problems with it, he takes it off, so this is 1903. 1905, he puts it back on the market, there's still problems, he takes it off. 1910, it's finally back on the market. That decade, he did about 10,000 experiments on storage batteries. And in 1910, there's a new biography written by Edison's attorney, Frank Dyer, and a journalist named T.C. Martin, Thomas Martin, with the help of Edison's secretary. Um, and so uh, this biography um, the, uh, quotes this episode where one of Edison's um, assistants, a guy named uh, uh, Walter Mallory, who had also been involved in the ore milling and cement works that Edison had, uh, Mallory is talking about how many experiments, you've, how often you'd failed in your attempt to develop a, a storage battery. And they still, it still wasn't on the market yet, right? And, and Edison says to him, uh, I haven't failed, I found 9,000 ways that don't work, <laughs> right? Um, and for Edison, that's what experimentation was. It was a way of using failure to guide you in the development of a successful technology. And that's what happened with the storage battery, right? He finally found a combination of chemicals and physical design that enabled him to have a very good storage battery. Now, unfortunately for Edison, although while it was, could be used in electric automobiles, World War I kind of ended um, electro, electric battery technology. Uh, it just wasn't suitable for use in a battlefield environment, right? You didn't have electricity you could plug the car into to, to recharge it. And the production of equipment for the war meant that automobile manufacturers weren't interested in continuing to work on electric batteries. That's one of the main reasons electric automobiles sort of disappear. I mean, they're still around. They're used mainly as um, uh, vehicles for delivery purposes in a city, which is actually the, what they're best suited for anyway. Uh, there are some taxi systems that use electric automobiles, although those disappear. But the batteries used in American industry extensively, um, including uh, for temporary power stations or for a power station on a farm where you don't have electricity. You could actually use the Edison battery, put a little system up. 
So the battery was very successful. Um, and that's the technology where that story emerges. And then later on it got uh, added to the history of the light bulb. So Edison's relationship with Tesla is shrouded in mythology. What most people know is just plain wrong. Uh, so Nikola Tesla, a uh, very creative, uh, uh, he was descended from uh, uh, Serbian parents who grew up in a, what is now Croatia. He uh, went to university. Um, he actually worked for a while for a telephone company in uh, Budapest that was established by somebody associated with Edison. And from there he went to Paris to work in, uh, with the Edison company in Paris that was manufacturing and um, uh, building uh, electric light plants. At that time, it was headed by a guy named Charles Batchelor, Edison's right-hand man at the Menlo, Newark and Menlo Park Laboratories, had gone over to Paris to set everything up. Batchelor comes back in 1884, and um, that's when Tesla comes over to the U.S. as well. He had proved his worth in the erection of uh, isolated plants in Europe. Um, he comes to work for the Edison Machine Works, of which Batchelor uh, is the head. Um, under Batchelor, there's a superintendent who sees, oversees the day-to-day -day operation. Um, Tesla is tasked with um, installing and also improving the dynamo technology that's being manufactured at the Edison Machine Works. The superintendent, not Bachelor, the superintendent uh, bets him $50,000, at least this is the story that, that uh, Tesla tells, that he can't make these certain improvements in, in dynamo technology, which Tesla proceeds to do. And then, not surprisingly, if you know anything about the environment, uh, the guy tells Tesla this is just an American joke. And, um, this kind of practical joke, especially for people like Tesla or the glassblower Ludwig Bohm at Menlo Park, who were, didn't fit in. They were more formal Europeans. They didn't dress the same or act the same. And so practical jokes, in both cases, drove them away from the Edison organization. Bohm left Menlo Park for other uh, lamp, uh, people working on electric lamps. And um, Tesla left the Edison machine works to strike out on his own for this idea he had for an arc light system, those bright street lights. Um, he had a limited relationship with Edison. They met a few times. He impressed Edison uh, with the work he was doing. Uh, they seemed to have a perfectly fine relationship. There's not this sense of tension. Uh, Tesla would later say he wanted to talk to Edison about his ideas for motors. He never did. Right? The common story is that he told Edison about all his great ideas for AC and Edison poo-pooed them. That's not what happened. Um, Tesla went off to establish an arc light company. Edison even briefly experimented with the, uh, the, Edison, uh, the Tesla arc light. He was trying to compare it to a street lighting system using incandescent lights that he had developed. Um, and they didn't adopt the Tesla system. Uh, in fact, one of the people connected to that system was a former Edison employee named William Carman. 
So Tesla had gone off, and then unfortunately the investors uh, turned out were using it to uh, essentially run a scam. And so Tesla was left on his own. He hooked up with a couple of people in New York involved in the electrical and telegraph industries. And they supported his work to help him set up a laboratory. He developed his ideas on motor technology, which they brought to the Westinghouse Company. Um, and so the Westinghouse Company, which was the main competitor with the Edison Company. So Edison had what was called direct current. Um, systems, uh, lower voltages, the distribution system was only a mile or so. Um, the alternating current system could distribute over a longer distance at higher voltages. You had to step it down before it came into a building to be safe. Um, Westinghouse had supported inventive work that led to the development of his AC system. The AC system was based on developments that took place in Europe. Um, in fact, in Europe during the time that, that Tesla was there. Um, and then um, uh, one of the, there were two main drawbacks to the AC system. Besides issues around safety, um, there was no meter and there was no motor. Right? And so this, you didn't have the potential to sell power as well as light. Um, so there were people working to solve these problems. Tesla came up with improvements in motor technology. Um, other people uh, came up with meters. And so by 1888, 1889, the Tesla, excuse me, the Westinghouse system is able to compete very successfully with the Edison system and is, in fact, beginning to uh, challenge it in really substantial ways. The people in the Edison world are encouraging Edison, please work on an AC system. We're getting beat because we just can't offer, you know. So suburbs, they don't want a central station in the suburb. They just want lines coming in from the dirty central station somewhere else, right? Uh, you don't want to have to build a central station every one or two miles in New York City or other uh, American cities. And so there are advantages to AC in terms of the distribution system. There are the questions around safety, and Edison, in fact, challenges the Westinghouse system on safety issues. And there's a whole other story about electrocution experiments with animals and eventually the adoption of the electric chair, uh, in which Edison took part and was a, was a very important player. Um, but the AC systems ultimately won out. And one of the motor technologies that, Edison, that Tesla devised was um, uh, a, uh, a system that was known as polyphase. Um, AC kind of has these phases that go up and down, so a polyphase system is just a little bit more complex, but it made for a really good motor design, and it turned out that the polyphase system was actually really good for the longer distance distribution system. And so, in 1895, Tesla's polyphase system goes into operation at Niagara Falls. Hydropower, right? And it powers Buffalo. Um, and uh, neighboring communities. And this marks the real shift to AC. Before then, there was a mix of AC and DC. Uh, even gaslight continued to be there for a while. Con Edison in New York consolidated gas. Edison Electric Light, 
became Con Edison. Um, so gas didn't go away immediately. DC didn't go away immediately. Con Edison's last DC station was decommissioned in 2006, I believe it was. Um, it was still powering elevators in apartment buildings because DC motors are better for certain purposes, like driving elevators up and down. Um, the, today, we use DC all the time. Every time you look at a computer, your phone, um, these other devices that are powered by batteries, those are all direct current. So increasingly, the, we have a need for direct current. And one of the interesting things that's emerged is it turns out that very high voltage DC is actually even better than AC for long distance transmission, but at much higher voltages than Edison or anybody in that era would have ever worked with. Um, so um, what was Edison's relationship with Tesla during this period? Tesla was, um, Edison called him a poet of science, right? And he understood that Tesla didn't really have that innovation streak in him. He was a really good experimenter. He knew how to conceptualize and experiment with new technology. Um, but the only technology that Tesla ever developed that really became a commercial success were the things he developed for the Westinghouse company. Because the Westinghouse engineers could convert it into and do the real development work that was necessary to make it commercial. That was something Tesla never really understood how to do. Um, so one of the um, things that happens in Tesla's career is his, his laboratory burns, uh, Edison offers his condolences. When, uh, there's a little bit of correspondence back and forth between them. There's never this sense that they're enemies, right? that they're battling each other. Um, that begins to emerge at the very end of Edison's life and when Tesla gets very old. And it happens, probably begins happening in the 1920s, um, with the effort to celebrate Light's Golden Jubilee, the 50th anniversary of the electric light. And so October 21 is the usual date attributed for the cotton thread experiment. Um, and that's always seen as the birth of the electric light. Um, it's more complicated as I described. It's a whole process to get to a commercial system and to a commercial light. But that's that's the, what they were celebrating. It was a year-long celebration. And so essentially it was a celebration of Edison. And Edison was being attributed as the inventor of everything. He invented the stock ticker. Well, Edison didn't invent the stock ticker. A guy named Edward Callahan did. Edison improved the stock ticker. Um, you know, and there are all sorts of... Edison invented the electric railway. Well, he experimented on electric railways. There were other people experimenting on it. Frank Sprague's the guy who made it commercial. Right? So Sprague writes an editorial in the New York Times. You know, he, he says, well, Edison should be credited with you know, the inventions he made that were really successful, and obviously we have him to thank for the commercialization of electrical light and power, but there are lots of other experimenters who made that system work, and I am the one who developed the first railway systems that were commercial, and so on and so forth. That's when you begin to see other people who are beginning to feel like Edison is getting the credit for too much. So Thompson, um, a guy named Elihu Thompson, the Thompson-Houston Company, still exists today, was an arc light company that became a uh, AC company as well. 
They're the company that merges with Edison General Electric to become General Electric. And Thompson continues to work for that company, General Electric. And he writes a letter in the 20s where he talks about how, you know, Edison is credited with everything electric light, even though he objected to high voltages that we use today, right? Um, and so there's this sense amongst the community of people who have worked in the inventive areas that Edison has that he's gotten too much credit. And I think later on when the first biography of, of Tesla is written based in part on interviews with him, that that kind of bitterness kind of shows through. Uh, and that's where a lot of this mythology emerges. But it's not there in the period when they were connected to each other personally, either when Tesla was working for Edison or later on when they were continuing to correspond with each other periodically. So one of the, one of the ways in which Edison had this, this saying, this very important saying that, you know, um, invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Uh, it's probably his most famous quote. And it gets used all the time and misused all the time. And so there are some people in uh, uh, modern innovation who think what that means is move quick and break things, right? That's sort of the modern uh, motto of innovators, right? Uh, that isn't what Edison meant at all. He meant that in order to have a successful innovation, right, you needed to have that German idea, and then you had to do the real work to both make it something that worked not just in the laboratory, but worked commercially. And even once it was out in the real world, you had to make it work and continue to work and cheapen it and make it better for users. Right? You weren't breaking things, you were making things. Right? And that's, I think, a really important lesson. Right? Both the value of failure and understanding failure as a way to succeed by understanding why you failed and how you can succeed based on your new understanding, both ex as an experimenter and as an innovator. Right? The thing that Edison did that was really remarkable with the electric light, he went from being an inventor who was largely working for other people, um, who were then taking his inventions and using them in existing systems, to becoming an innovator. And what I mean by that is he not only conceptualized and produced a laboratory version of a technology, and Tesla did that a lot, but the other side of that is the development work. Uh, one of the ways to understand how important that was, so Edison's, we have on the uh, Edison Papers website a graph of Edison's patents by the date at which he executed those patents. That is the, date, the earliest date associated with them, even before he filed the patent. And it's remarkable. So 1878, there's a little uh, group of patents related to electric light. 1879, the year of research, it's a little bit more. 1880, the year of development at Menlo Park, it spikes up again. And then 81, 82, and 83. Most of the work isn't taking place at the laboratory. It's taking place in the manufacturing shops and in the process of installing plants, solving problems of the real world commercialization of this new technology and of producing lamps and building generators and meters and so forth. And that's the lesson to take from Edison, right? That 
easy part in some sense is figuring out what will work in the lab. Figuring out how to get into the real world and make it work there, that's the hard part, right? Having a vision for how that will happen and then having a process for making it happen. And, th and that's Edison's real contribution. And that's where the laboratory fits in. Right? I became a model for other companies and other inventors, right? Because it wasn't just a research laboratory. You did some research and came up with something. It was a research and development laboratory, and it was connected to the manufacturing as well as to the commercialization, right? And that was true of the West Orange Lab, which was even more connected to Edison's manufacturing operations than the Menlo Park Lab had been. From the outset, Edison envisioned that as a laboratory that would be the center of an industrial complex, right? And so uh, I think this is really important to understand, you know, we think of high tech now as what technology is, right? Digital technology, computer technology. We focus on the software, on apps and things like that. But the physical technologies that all of those are based on require a different kind of innovation than the kind of um, production of code does, right? It requires um, material knowledge and, and working with materials, right? It requires figuring out how things work in a system, a physical system, right? Uh, not a virtual system. And so all of these things I think are really important to understand about the nature of innovation, um, that it's a much more complex process, that um, it encompasses both research and development and ongoing R&D, right? to make things work and continue to work properly in the real world. And the other thing that we forget is two things. One, all of those technologies that are out there, the internet, for example, wouldn't exist if not for the standards that allow everything to interconnect together, right? And so standards is a lot of what engineers do, is they design standards, right? And they get together and agree on what those standards are, and companies do the same thing. So that's really important, these standards. The other thing, most of what goes on with our modern technical systems is not innovation, it's maintenance, right? And minor improvements rather than these radical innovations, which is what we think of innovation as being, right? There's only so many kind of radical system innovations that uh, are out there, but there are a lot of day-to-day -day innovations that make the technologies that we work with better and make us able to use them in a day-to-day -day way that are essential. And Edison understood that that is part of the process as well. So there are a lot of um, uh, similarities between Steve Jobs and, and uh, Elon Musk in terms of um, the way they sort of think about invention and innovation. Um, I even wrote in a essay at one point for CNN after Steve Jobs died, sort of talking about some of the similarities. Um, I think they, they're both people who learn from failure, Jobs in particular. Uh, that's one of the things about his biography that's really important to understand. Um, the, uh, they're both very good at promoting their ideas. Um, I think Jobs developed a really 
good R&D system for improving and developing Apple technologies and was very good at promoting them, right? Musk um, is in some ways more of a, a visionary than uh, Edison and uh, Jobs. I mean, I, th I think he sort of uh, uh, has this, this uh, way of sort of thinking big, which, all, which they did too in some ways, but I think Musk is more of a, a speculator about the future, although Edison did, did plenty of that. Um, the thing that he did, which is not dissimilar from what Edison did, was to understand the Tesla as a system, the Tesla car as a system, that the battery was as important, in fact, more important in some respects than the automobile. In fact, I think some of the problems he had initially was to focus not enough on the building of the automobile and the design of the automobile and the manufacture of the automobile. But he understood that the battery was the kind of crucial feature, and it was crucial in several ways. One, um, driving down the cost of manufacturing. That's why he built the, that huge battery plant in uh, Las Vegas, uh, out in the desert beyond Las Vegas, and also um, as building other plants. Um, so driving down the cost, driving down the weight, increasing the efficiency, figuring out how to charge it quickly. So the Tesla charger was a key feature of the innovation. Um, he understood that he needed to find a way to um, promote that technology in a way that gave him a window to um, further development and so I think his focus on high-end automobiles in a world where that is um, uh, a feasible market for a luxury item like the Tesla uh, gained him some time and then to figure out how to bring that to a, a more low-cost market. I mean he's still working on that and I think what's happened is that he's pushed ahead the electric automobile market in a way similar to what Edison did with electric light and power, but I think what we're going to start seeing is that that market is much more, um, especially in this era of climate change as that market increases, right, that there are going to be many more competitors. And eventually there will probably be a whole lot of competitors like there were in the early electric light industry, and then they will winnow down to a small few, right. That's often what happens. Um, Tesla may or may not end up being one of those companies that becomes one of the big winners at the end. But he's driven everything forward, and I think that's where he kind of resembles Edison in terms of sort of thinking about the electric light and what he's done with electric automobiles. Um, you know, whether his vision of um, a Mars landing works or not, he's certainly been able to innovate um, uh, spacecraft, right? Uh, and uh, that's been another place where he's, again, kind of driven a new market. And so I think there are ways in which uh, Musk, as much as he sometimes uh, overstates his case, that was something Edison did a lot. Um, but then he also figured out how to make it work. And so there are ways in which there are.